Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. As you're turning to the 19th Psalm, if you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bible under your chair, or in front of you, the brown one, it's on page 390. Page 390. But actually, you have a printout in your bulletin today. So if you look in your bulletin, I printed out the text here. And the reason for that is because as I I was looking through different translations of the text, they were so different in so many ways that I just figured I might as well print it out so that you can follow along word by word as I use these words to make my points. On the back side of the, the scripture sheet is an outline of the sermon. So if you want to follow along that way, you can kind of flip back and forth and that might serve you well. You're also welcome to read from your own translation as well. That would not be a bad thing at all. That would be a good thing. So, with that being said, let me read to you Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14, though we're only going to focus on verses 7 through 11 in our study this morning. So, Psalm 19, either on, in your Bible or in the handout, verses 7 through 14. Hear the word of God. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be innocent and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, this prayer of David's is our prayer. That you would cleanse us from hidden faults. That you would search us and try us and know our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray that you would convict us of sin and cause us to confess our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do pray now that as we think about this text, that the meditation of my mouth and the meditation of our minds and ears and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. Our Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Apart from your spirit, Lord God, we cannot meditate fruitfully today. And we cannot please you. And we can't grow. So would you do us a great good by causing your spirit to fill us with your word. Open our eyes. Make our heart glad. Renew our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you probably have a list of New Year's resolutions that you have, I hope. It's a good thing to resolve to do good things. Maybe you have a diet in there and a weight loss goal, as many often do. So this introduction is not going to help you too much. But I want you to think about your top eight restaurants you'd eat at if you can have an all-access, all-you-can-eat-without-cost feast all year for 2016. Anytime they see you, everyone there knows you, you get a free pass to eat whatever you want, whenever you want, at eight restaurants. Which ones would you choose? Now, I'll tell you some that I would choose that make my top eight. Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is good. The original chicken sandwich. Chipotle. Love their Mexican food there. I was debating on this one. Korean barbecue. All-you-can-eat Korean barbecue, Maybe. Stonefire Grill is one of my favorites. Cheesecake Factory. I guess I'd have to throw in Denny's because the guys always eat at Denny's on Monday morning. And you're welcome to that with the men. Um, There's a Thai restaurant. It's one of my favorite. Pieology. Have you heard of Pieology? 
the study of custom pizza. Yeah, it's a great place. Um, it's a, you know, you can, uh, so anyways, biology, I could go on about biology. One of my, one of our family favorites. And Subway. I do have a goal of staying healthy, so Subway, you got to throw in some healthy restaurant in there. And easily accessible. There's lots of Subways everywhere. That would be great, wouldn't it? To have an all-you-can-eat pass to eight, of, eight restaurants of your choosing in 2016. Not just because of the good food, but you'd save a lot of money as well, wouldn't you? Now, if I give you an option between reading and hearing God's Word in 2016 regularly and remembering everything you learned from the Bible, or, and, and, then, uh, and you have access to a Bible to read all year long, or you get $10 million and all-you-can-eat gift certificates to your top eight favorite restaurants, but you can't read the Bible at all in 2018 or hear it, what would you choose? I said $10 million. Did I throw $10 million in there? I did. $10 million and all-you-can-eat restaurants. Just for one year. You could pick up the Bible in 2017. Just go one year without the Bible. The sad thing is, questions like this reveal our hearts, me included. If I told you that there was a billionaire who wanted to bless the first 50,000 Angelinos, that's L.A. County residents, who had less than $4 million. Do you have less than $4 million in your liquid bank account? Most of us qualify there, right? Um, if, you want, if he was going to give a few million dollars to the first 50,000 as an act of generosity in our church parking lot, next Sunday morning at 6 o'clock a.m., January 10th, would you plan on being here? Would you sacrifice sleep? Maybe you'd come even if you were sick. Would you find a way to reschedule work? Call it, you know, reschedule work for it? In my heart of hearts, I confess that I would. Now, what does that say? And I wouldn't even say you're wrong for doing that, but what does that say about how what we truly value? When you juxtapose that with the Bible, God's Word. When you put your desire for money or food next to your desire for God's Word... What do you value more? Really, what do you value more? Now, what would David's answer be according to verse 10? Look at verse 10. Speaking of God's word, and he says what? They are more desirable than what? Than gold. Than an abundance of gold. Than $4 million. Than $10 million. More desirable is God's word than $10 million. It just doesn't land here, right? It's like, ah, I know that's right, but it doesn't feel right. And sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Your favorite foods. Your sweetest desserts. So what's wrong with us? The problem is that we value the, 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 the value of the Bible is not obvious to us. We're more conformed to this world than we think we are. Our mind still needs a lot of renewal. Renewing our minds, Romans 12, 2. Like a three-year-old who would choose a nickel over a $100 bill because a nickel is shiny. And round. And they see a lot of paper in the house anyways. What's another piece of paper? They don't recognize the value of what's in front of them. They have to be taught to truly treasure what is truly valuable, right? And so it is with us. We need to realize what is truly treasure and what is actually trash. So here's the main idea. We need to desire doctrine, God's word. We need to desire doctrine over dinner and dessert. We need to be motivated to meditation more than making millions. Or making any money, really. Nothing wrong with money in itself. It's a tool and we need it to glorify God and provide for our families. We need money in this world. We need food or else we would die. So I'm not saying those things are bad. But when you compare our desires for those needs, we feel like we need that a lot more than we feel like we need God's word, don't we? And that puts us to shame as those who profess to follow Jesus. So why would David choose scripture over money and meals? Why? I see three reasons in this passage. And so let's go over these three reasons. And hopefully this will motivate us in 2016 to desire God's word more than we ever have in our lives. Okay? Why did David choose the scriptures over money and meals. Verse 7 says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect. Verse 7 also says, The testimony of the Lord. 
Verse 8 calls it the precepts of the Lord. Verse 8 calls it the command of the Lord. Verse 9 says the fear of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord. Whose, whose ordinances are these? Whose commands are these? Whose testimony is this? Whose law is this? Whose instruction is this? Whose is it? God's. So here's the first reason why this is more valuable than money and meals. Because this is God's word. It's because these words are God's. If they weren't God's words, then of course choose millions over them. If they're my words, or a friend's words, or even a family member's words, perhaps you might choose millions over those words. But if they're God's words, then it it has to be more valuable than money and meals. The words here have one source, God, right? And not just God, look at the capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. Did it come out in my... It did not come out in my copy here. I'm sorry. That's a misprint. It should be capital L-O-R-D. The law, the instruction of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. Now, when it's capital, what does that mean? It's referring to the name of God, and that name is? Yahweh. Yahweh. Praise God. You guys are, you know, this this is a recurring theme, right? I'm teaching the Bible here every week. You're going to get this. It means Yahweh. There's a Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, mispronunciation of it. There's another word called Adonai, which is master or Lord. It's not the testimony of the master, the law of the Lord, the, the one who's in control. It's the law of Yahweh. It's the testimony of Yahweh. This is Yahweh's words. Now, who's Yahweh? Yahweh is God. But Yahweh is the personal name of God in the same way that my name is not pastor. My name is PJ. My name is not dad or Abba. My kids call me Abba, which means dad. But my name is not dad. That's my role in their lives. God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh. That's his personal name. So and so everyone says, well, I believe in God. Well, which God? Because God has a personal name. In the Old Testament, his name is Yahweh. In the New Testament, his name is Jesus. We have a God and he has a name and his name is Yahweh. And this is his word. Now, what's the significance of the name of Yahweh? This would be a whole sermon or two sermons in and of itself. Let me just say briefly, when you hear the word Yahweh, you should be thinking of Exodus. Exodus 3 and Exodus 33. Now here, in Exodus 3, remember Moses was going to take, he was going to bust out the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so, God talks to Moses in a burning bush. And then Moses says, well, when I go to your people and they say, what's the name of God? What am I going to say? I don't even know your name. And then God says, tell them I am that I am. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God made a covenant with them that he would bless them, that he would give them a land and a people and a blessing. And God would be their God and they would be his people forever. They were cursed under sin, but God promised blessing on sinners through Abraham. And God never breaks His covenant. His name is Yahweh, the God who never breaks His covenant. Not with Abraham, not with Isaac, not with Jacob, not with David, not with Jesus Christ, and not with you, if you're in Jesus Christ. Actually, even if you're outside of Jesus Christ, He will keep His covenant to judgment and condemnation. God will just always keep His covenant. That's His name, Yahweh. The God who keeps his covenant of blessing. Not only that, when you say, I am that I am, this name also means that God does what he wants. In Exodus 33, when when Moses says, show me your glory, and then God says, I will proclaim my name before you. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Saying, what does that have to do with your name? I just wanted to see your na- hear your name and see your glory. Well, my name is the fact that I have compassion on whoever I want and I have mercy on whoever I want. In other words, God does whatever He pleases. To be Yahweh is to be God. And to be God means you're in complete, absolute control of everything in the universe without exception. There's no asterisk. There's no fine print. God is in control of everything and He does everything He wants to do. In his sovereign purposes and decrees. And that's what it means to be God. And this God who's the creator, this God who's the covenant keeper, this God who's in sovereign control, is the God who gives us his testimonies, his words. That's why these words are more valuable than millions. Because they're his.
Now, he gives us six titles for these words, for his words. And so this is still the first point, that these words are God's words. In verses 7 through 9, you see six titles for the scriptures. What are the six titles? The first one, there's two in each verse. In verse 7, they're called the instruction of Yahweh and the testimony of Yahweh. In verse 8, they're called what? The precepts of Yahweh and the command of Yahweh. In verse 9, they're called the fear of Yahweh and the ordinance of Yahweh. Let's think about these six just briefly. What does it mean that they are the instruction of Yahweh? I'll give you a Hebrew word and you probably have heard it before. Torah. Have you heard the word Torah before? We translate that law sometimes. The law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh. Now, law is probably a bad translation. In, not always, but in this case. And here's why. When you think of law, what do you think of? Do and do not do, right? Commands, right? This is the law. But the, the Torah is not just thou shall not kill. The Torah is God promising Abraham a blessing. Is that a, is that a law? It's not really a law. It's just, it's part of the Torah. It's part of the instruction of the Lord. And that's why instruction or teaching is a better translation generally. Not always, but almost always for the word Torah. The instruction of the Lord. The first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I have five sermons, on one on each book that we have in our website and on CD, if you want to hear them. But that is the instruction of the Lord that David is thinking about as he writes this passage. Now, it applies to the whole Bible, but these are the instructions of God teaching us about who He is, what He's done, who we are, first as sinners, and then what He does to change us, and then how we should live. This word is instruction from God. It's teaching from God about who He is, who we are, what He's done in Christ, and what we are to do in light of who He is and what He's done. That's what we do on Wednesday Bible studies, is think about that specifically, if you ever want to join us at 6 p.m. So it's the law, or the, the instruction. But secondly, look again there in verse 7, it's the testimony of the Lord. Now when you think of testimony, you think of someone sharing their own personal what? Story, right? Their own personal testimony, their own personal story. It's usually not told by someone else. It's told in first person, right? It's not a biography, it's what we call and what? Autobiography, right? Told in first person. So think about this. This is a first person autobiography from God. Is this more valuable than millions? Would you want an autobiography written by God for you? From Himself? Not from other people? Not other people's opinions, but God's own opinion of Himself? Do you want that? That's what this is. It's the testimony of Yahweh. It's not second-hand information. Now, you're saying, well, PJ, didn't David write this? Yes, we do have the doctrine of inspiration. God uses people. And so this is really, Psalm 19 is really David's first-hand work, but it is also equally God's first-hand work. It's not second-hand from God. As I'm preaching to you now, it's sort of second-hand. If I wrote a book on Psalm 19, that would be second-hand. But when you're reading Psalm 19 itself, this is first-hand from God and from the human author. But the point here is it's God's testimony. The third title here in verse 8 is the precepts of the Lord. What are precepts? Precepts are principles that lead to action. So it's certain principles that you keep in your life that, that dictate the decisions you make. And these precepts or principles are coming from God. So, for example, one principle in my marriage that we would apply is if we ever got into a heated argument, we would... Um, or not a heat argument, one principle that I try to live by, I don't always do this perfectly, but is if someone rebukes me, or especially if my wife, my wife confronts me and rebukes me, I will, I will take one minute to not respond, or five minutes to not respond. Actually, well, I haven't done this for a while, but I think it was long, it was maybe 30 minutes or an hour, where I would say, okay, whatever you tell me as a critique, I won't respond for one hour. Why? Because what do you do as soon as, as, soon as someone critiques you? You get what? What do you feel? Anger and defensiveness, right? And ten excuses come to your mind why they're wrong. But then if you sit for an hour, guess what happens to those excuses? They start evaporating. Because the initial sting of the rebuke is gone, and you have time to sit in it, and then you realize, she's right. That's just a basic... Now, that's just a basic... That's my point. It's like, it's a principle, don't, whenever you're corrected, don't respond for 30 minutes to an hour. 
Now, again, the Bible's not, my point is, that's a principle, it changes the way I live my life. The Bible gives us principles, precepts, that when you fill them into your life, it changes the way you live your life. So, precepts of the Lord. Fourth, the command of the Lord, in verse 8, the command of Yahweh is radiant. Now, when it says the command, what is the command? It's an authoritative declaration. Thou shalt not do this, you shall do this. So, it comes with all of the authority and accountability of the commander. So when God speaks, it comes with all of His authority. You need to obey it because it's God's command. A fifth title in verse 9. Now this is a funny one. It's a little weird. Verse 9, what's the fifth title for the Word of God? Somebody say it out loud. The fear of the Lord. Now this is strange because this is the only place in the Bible that I think it's not referring to our fearing God, but God's fearing God. Okay, now why do I think that? Because if you read 7, 8, and 9, these are six couplets, or three couplets, six lines, and the first line of each of, of the six lines is about God's Word. Right? Command of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, instruction of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, ordinances of the Lord, fear of the Lord. They're all parallel. So this sixth one, or this fifth one, has to be referring to Scripture, I think. But And so you think about it, Proverbs 1, 9 talks about our fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Or understanding. And that's our fear in God, our reverential awe of God. Why is this talking about God's fear of God? Here's why. When, why, is, why is our fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because when you fear God, when you fear Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, that defines and directs your whole life, Right? If you have a true reverential awe, trust, respect, and devotion to Yahweh, if that's truly part of your life, that doesn't just become part of your life, it becomes the center of your life. And when it becomes the center of your life, it directs your life, right? It defines who you are. So, what defines who God is? What directs God's mission? What is the core of God's desire? It's his own reverential awe towards himself. God fears himself. Not in a, I'm scared of myself, but he respects himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is not an idolater. Can we worship other gods besides God? No. Can God worship someone else besides himself? Should God worship us? God forbid, right? God, please don't worship us. We're not worthy of that kind of worship, right? God doesn't worship anyone else. So who does he worship? Himself. He's God. He fears himself in that sense. And that defines who he is. So you want to know who God is at the center of who, who he is? What should you do? Look at the Bible. This reveals the fear of God. The center of who God is in all his character is revealed in Scripture. Now, I probably opened up a can of worms in terms of thoughts. And I, I realized that, and I, I wrote that in my first notes before they accidentally got deleted last night. And so, um, if you, I, I did put in my old notes that if you want to ask me questions about it, please ask me about it. If I get enough questions about it, I, do, I will preach a sermon on it, even, this, even next week or in February. So, um, if you have questions about that, please, please think, uh, questions about the God-centeredness of God. Because God does fear himself above all. He worships. He doesn't worship anyone else. He doesn't worship creation. He's not an idolater. Okay, but my point is the Bible reveals the heart of God and the heart of what God values and fears. Number nine, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteousness. So, righteous. So here we have the ordinances of God. What are ordinances? Judgments, laws, case law. God is the judge... He's the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch of the government. And so what he says is an ordinance binding on all of creation. Okay? So here you have six titles for the word of God. So why should you value the Bible more than millions and more than meals? Because it is God's words. They're not just anyone's words. These are God's words. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be saying, you know what, PJ? This is why I'm not a Christian. Because the Bible is old, it's outdated, it's corrupted, it's self-contradictory, and it's contradicting modern science and ethics. 
homosexuality is a sin? Hello? It's, it's so 2008, right? It's so outdated. God is the creator and he spoke by word? That can't be right. That's, out, that's not in line with modern science. And not only that, it contradicts itself. Why would anyone base their lives on a 2,000-year-old book that has been written by humans who have error? Right? You might be thinking that if you're not a Christian. I have a lot of answers because those are actually a lot of questions. I don't want to take the rest of the sermon to answer that one objection. Let me just say this right now, if you're not a Christian. I understand your sentiment. I get it. I get why that's a serious question. And it is a serious question. And you do need to ask it and seek an answer. But here's, here's where I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be very specific with your beliefs and not just rely on what others have said. If you're saying it's self-contradictory, look at what two verses are self-contradictory. Okay? Show, show a Christian, hey, hey Christian, hey PJ, this verse over here in Daniel doesn't agree with this verse over here in Hebrews. There's a contradiction here. Don't just say the Bible self-contradictory where you can't name a contradiction. If you do, you're just relying on what other people have said. Your faith is in their, in their words. Why put your faith in their words? So be specific with your questions. Is it self-contradictory? Maybe it's the evolution question or the ethics question. Or maybe it's just that it's old or that it was written by human authors. How can you, Let me just take this one on. All these answers are popping up in my head. But um, what if someone says, well, it's just a human word. So every time humans write, do humans make mistakes? Are humans make, have human, do all humans make mistakes? Yes. yes. This was written by 40 humans, right, PJ? Right. So you're telling me there's no mistake in the Bible? Yes. I'm telling you that. Well, but humans make mistakes. Every human makes mistakes. And every human makes mistakes when they write. Well, that's just not true. Not always. For example, humans can make true statements without any error in it. George Washington was the first president of the United States. Pause. Any error in that statement? No error. You can nuance it more. You can put his middle name in there if you want. But it's not. A, there's nothing false in that statement, right? Am I human? Did I just say a completely true statement with no error in it? Yes. It's possible for humans to make statements without error. Not for their whole lives, but it's possible for them to do it. And that's all we're saying is with the Bible, is that everything in this Bible is true. Not everything Paul ever said was true, or David, but everything written in the Scriptures are true. Okay, enough of that. That's the first reason. These are God's words. Second reason why we need to desire doctrine over dollars, and dinners, and desserts. Because these words are amazing. Look at these eight characteristics of God's word. Going back to verse 7. The law of the Lord, or the instruction of the Lord, is what? Perfect. What does it mean to be perfect? Without blemish. It's blameless. No defect. No imperfections in the Bible, in the original manuscripts. Now, our translations do have a little bit of imperfections in it, as you can see with all of our different translations here. Yet, in the original autographs, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, they are without blemish in the original writings. Secondly, not only are they perfect, what else are they? In verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. Okay, I want you guys to speak back when I'm telling you when I'm asking this. So, trustworthy. It's a stable foundation. Do you remember Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Don't build your house on the sand, but build it on a what? Rock. Because when the storm comes, if your foundations are not solid, the house will fall. Don't build your life on something not trustworthy. Build it on solid foundation. And what is trustworthy? The testimony of the Lord. More valuable than money. Third title here. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are... Try it again. The precepts of the Lord are... Right. right. That means they are according to the standard of reality. If I say... Here's Brother Gale. If I say, Brother Gale is 6'3", six, six, is my guess. That's a real guess. Brother, He's 6'3". He's now, how are we going to know if I'm right or wrong? We will take measuring tape. We'll mark his height on the wall... We will measure the height. And whatever it is according to that standard, you can tell if I am right or wrong. The Bible is always in perfect conformity with the standard, with the ruler. That's what it means by right. It's according to the standard of reality. So everything written in here is right. 
Next. The test, or on verse 8, the command of the Lord is what? Radiant. What's another word for radiant? Bright. Shining. Right? It's shining. So, so God's word is shining. It's bright. It, it's light. It enlightens and drives out the darkness in our lives. It exposes the sin that we hide in our lives that we can't get rid of. And God puts the flashlight and you feel like, oh, don't put the flashlight right here. And then God does because he's merciful. And he exposes our sin to destroy our sin in love and compassion. So the word of God is radiant. Next, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is what? Pure. It's clean. It's ceremonially clean. It's without impurity. It's like gold refined in the fire seven times over so that there is nothing but pure gold. There is no impurity in the Bible. Next, in verse, uh, there's a tricky one. In verse 9, there's another. The fear of the Lord is pure. And then what does it say after pure? Enduring forever. This is the seventh, the, the, the sixth one. The Bible is enduring forever. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. Matthew chapter 5. God's word remains forever. Your money is gone. Right? Money has wings, doesn't it? And meals, they might be so satisfying for the moment, but you just wait four hours and what are you? You're hungry again, right? It is the opposite of eternal and enduring forever. It is so short. Why would we want that more than God's words? Not only is it enduring forever, continuing in verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are what? Reliable. That's like trustworthy. It's almost like trustworthy, but there's a difference here. It's more of a personal aspect. Do you have a friend? I want you to just think of this person in your mind. Not, don't get too distracted, but a little bit to make this point. You have a friend who is reliable. We have another word for it. Loyal. You have any friends who are loyal? That no matter what they say, they're going to keep their word. It's not just rock to stand on. There's a personal aspect to that reliability. That's what the Bible is. God is that loyal father. He's that loyal master. He's that loyal friend. He's that loyal leader who will never, ever lead you astray. He is always reliable with what he says. Not only that, verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and what? Altogether righteous. Now, this is just like right according to the standard, but this has the idea of the law court. When they hand down a verdict, you're either guilty or... Or what? Not guilty, right? So this has the idea of you put the Bible on trial. We press charges against the Bible as being untrue or unreliable or misleading or corrupt. Whatever you want to charge the Bible with, you put it in court, you get the evidence out there and the verdict is put out and it is righteous altogether. It is always righteous. It will always be not guilty. It will always be innocent because they are God's words. These are the characteristics of God's word. Is this more valuable than money? Yeah. Is it more valuable than meals? Yes. Now we read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. Now Jesus is not the Bible. He's not the Bible, but He is perfectly revealed in the Bible. He is authoritatively revealed in the Bible. He is the main point of the Bible. And when you read the Bible, the goal of the Bible is to get you to encounter Jesus. And when you think about these eight characteristics of the Bible, aren't they characteristics of Jesus? Isn't Jesus perfect without blemish and blameless? Isn't Jesus trustworthy like a rock you can stand on? Isn't Jesus right according to the standard of reality? Isn't Jesus radiant and shining as the light of the world? Isn't Jesus reliable like a loyal friend who will never backstab you or turn his back on you or even fail with good intentions and just be unable and limited from keeping his word? Isn't Jesus pure with zero drops of impurity in his holiness? Isn't Jesus enduring forever? From eternity to eternity? Isn't Jesus righteous altogether and not guilty when tried in the court of law? Yes, He's God. And God brings Himself to us in Jesus in the Bible. 
You get rid of the Bible, you get rid of Jesus. Not because the Bible is Jesus, but the Bible is the only source of authoritatively revealing Jesus as God intends Him to be revealed. You pick money over Jesus? Would I, and I feel I would pick a meal over Jesus? It's not just about picking the Bible over money or meals. It's about picking Jesus over money or meals. Do you want Him in 2016? Last reason. So, we should want the Bible because it's God's. We should want the Bible more because it's amazing. And thirdly, we should want the Bible more than meals and money because its words are effective. We have six effects of God's word in verses 9, 10, 7, 8, 9, and 11. Okay, let's look at these very briefly. Six uh, verse, I'm sorry, six characteristics. Number one, in verse 7, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It renews one's what? Soul or life. Or it converts the soul, the King James Version. So it gives life. James 1.18 says that we were brought forth. He gave us a new birth by the word of truth. So you're born through the scriptures. I mean, through the truth of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy, You know, Timothy, that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible gives life. St. Augustine was riddled and, and dominated by sexual immorality and womanizing in the thir- was it 300s, I think. And he was dominated by it. And you know what? He was convicted. He was reading or he was taking a nap and he heard someone say, take up and read. He takes his Bible, flips it open. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he got saved by reading that verse. Martin Luther reading Romans 1.17 and beating on that verse again and again that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. He would, what does that mean? And he would study it and study it. And then he said, it was like heaven's gates flew open. And I was ushered into life itself. For me, it was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Not quite as dramatic. I heard the gospel first time. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God gave me life. My wife read 1 Peter. And that's how she became a Christian. John Lee read the book of James. And that's how God gave him life. The Bible gives life. Eternal life. It saves people. It converts the soul. It is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. And the gospel is a message of the Bible. Not only does it give life, it sustains life. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every what? Word that comes from the mouth of God. You live on bread, don't you? Well, we live on God's words as well. It, 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 it sustains life. And the next five effects here show that it sustains life. So not only does it renew one's life, the testimony of the Lord, verse 7, is trustworthy. And what does it do? It makes the inexperienced what? Wise. It makes the simple-minded wise. Now, to be inexperienced or simple, it means that it's, it's talking to people who are gullible. You know people who are gullible? Easily deceived or persuaded, showing a lack of wisdom and understanding, yet having some capacity to change their condition. They have what we would call today, this is a, a virtue in our day, an open mind. It's being open to everything. Being closed-minded is a is a pejorative term today, right? It's an insult to say you're closed-minded. Well, guess what? If you have an open mind, you know what the Bible says? Shut it. It shouldn't always be open. Should I be open to the fact that there's another way to heaven? Should I be open-minded to the fact that um, Jesus isn't God? Or that Jesus never existed? Should I be open to the fact that maybe my wife will be acceptable if I sleep with other women? No, there are some things you just close your mind, right? Open-mindedness is not a virtue by itself. When God speaks, it's true, so we close our mind to that. That's where wisdom comes in. Simple-mindedness, foolishness, and inexperience is due to not having convictions that are solid. Not having a mind that is closed because it is secure in the truth that God has revealed. The Bible makes simple, inexperienced, young people even, wise. So read your Bible. 
Psalm 119.98 says, Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. You want wisdom? Even if you're young, read the Bible. You want wisdom if you're older? Read the Bible. It teaches you how to live life. How do you handle being gossiped about? Read the Bible. How do you handle someone disapproving of you? Read the Bible. How do you handle a trial or a tragedy in your life? Read the Bible. How do you handle internet access on your phone and computer and tablet that has pornography and all kinds of evils? Read the Bible. Should you just have an open mind? No. Close your mind where the Bible tells you to close it. Keep your mind open where the Bible tells you to keep it open. Closed-mindedness is not a virtue either. It just, wisdom is closing your mind on the right things and open your mind on the right things. Foolishness is getting those things wrong. You want to know how to live life with wisdom? Read your Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped for every good work in every difficult situation of your life? Study the Bible. It's profitable for that, brothers and sisters. If you're not a Christian, God is telling you to trust in Jesus Christ. That's where you'll find life. That's where you'll find wisdom. I know it's counterintuitive to this world, but that's what God is telling you. God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins because we are all sinners condemned to death before a holy and righteous God. But Jesus lived a perfect life that we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He rules and reigns over all, and He's coming again. And until He comes again, or until you die, you have a chance, an opportunity, this morning even, to call on God to save you. That Jesus' death for your sins and His resurrection from the dead would count for you. And that God would give you life and salvation and wisdom. If you're not a Christian, call on Him to save you. Third characteristic here, of, or third effect of the Bible, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. And what do they do? They make the heart what? Glad. You want to be happy? Everyone wants to be happy, right? Well, if you want your heart to be glad, not just flimsy, superficial, surfacey gladness. I'm talking about Paul's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. To be able to have a deep-seated and overly expressive joy that's real even in pain. How do you get that? The Word of God. Everyone wants to be happy. God's Word leads us. Psalm 1611 says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want pleasures forevermore? You want fullness of joy? Draw near to God. You want to draw near to God? Read His Word. Don't try to draw near to Him while ignoring Him. That's like telling My spouse, I really want to be close to you. I just don't want to hear what you have to say, ever. You laugh because that's it's 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 ridiculous, right? How can you get close to someone without ever listening to their words? God, I want to be near you, but I don't have time for this. How does that even work? That's not how relationships work. Okay, Uh, what else does it do? Verse, uh, I gotta I gotta move a little quicker. Verse eight: The command of the Lord is radiant. What does it do to our eyes? It makes us what? Light up. It enlightens us. You want enlight- You want to see the world clearly? You want to see like Neo in the Matrix? Sorry, no one's seen that movie. Neo sees the world and this world is a whole code and he gets to see the whole thing. That's how Christians are when they are enlightened. Not Buddhist enlightenment where you just meditate and empty your mind of thoughts. You fill your mind with God's thoughts and you see the world with lights on. It's different, right? Walking around your room with the lights off could hurt yourself. Turn the lights on, and you can see, right? The Bible lights up your world so you can see where you're going. See what you're doing. And so, Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. There will be no light for them. Whenever people want to say, and you know, as a pastor, I get this, and I want this from all of you. Everyone gives me different opinions of what we should do in this church. That's good. I'm glad you care. We all should care. And so, I want to echo what... Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and the testimony, to the word of God, right? Let's go to the Bible, because where's our light? Where's our light to chart the path forward in this darkness as a church? 
the Bible. Not my wisdom, not your wisdom, not your experience, not my experience. The Bible is going to guide our church. The Bible is going to guide you in 2016 if you'll let it. Letter, our next one. Um, fifthly, look at verse 11 and 12. These are the last verses of the text. And then I'll apply it and we're done. Verse 11. Through the scripture, your servant is what? Warned by them. Do you, ever, do, you have, do you have any mistakes in your life that you wish someone warned you about? And because they didn't warn you or because you didn't hear their warning, you ended up making a mistake? Especially if you weren't a Christian until later on in life. You probably made a lot of mistakes as a non-Christian where you're just like, man, if I was warned earlier, that would have saved me a, heart, a lot of heartache and trouble, right? That's what this is saying. Why would you not read the Bible as a Christian when you can get all of these warnings and, and minimize the regrets, Right? It makes no sense. This is more valuable than money. Money won't warn you. Your meals won't warn you. This keeps us from danger because it warns us about trouble up ahead so that we would not be ashamed. And most of all, that we won't stand judgment. We're all going to stand judgment. My job as a pastor is to get you ready for judgment day. You're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. Are you ready? Have you been warned? Are you taking in God's warnings to get ready? Lastly, last, last effect of God's word. In verse 11, what, is, what do we have in keeping God's word? There's what? Great what? Great reward. Like pirates with a map. right? And a big X marks the spot. They're finding the hidden treasure, the reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. You guys know that? Matthew 25? We will see His face. His names will be on our forehead. Revelation 22. We will reign with Him forever and ever. We will enjoy the fruit of our rewards. Our works count. Not to save us. You cannot be saved by works. A lot of people get Christianity wrong because they think to be a Christian is to do a lot of religious things. That's how you become a Christian. No. But it is religious. You do a lot of godly good things. To receive reward as an expression of your love and devotion to Christ. You want to store up treasures in heaven? Then read God's word. It will guide you to great reward. One of my big regrets, I'm 35 now, I know I still have a lot of time. And you older brothers and sisters will say, PJ, you have a lot of time. Maybe. Or you might say, I'm foolish. I feel like I haven't planned well for my retirement yet. I'm only 35, but still. If I would have been saving since 20 or 25, wouldn't that make a difference as it exponentially grows? It's crazy how we will go crazy about planning for our last 10 or 30 years of our life and not our last 10 or 30 million ages of existence. We're trying to invest so that we have our, 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 you know, a good last 20 years. What about your last 20 billion years? Right? We can get so caught up with saving and financial planning. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but you have to keep perspective. Non-Christians should look at Christians as crazy because we invest everything in eternity because there's great reward there. And they say, you're crazy to, to give money to missions? What a waste! Is that a waste? No, there's great reward. We're going to see some people in heaven because of what we gave last month. Is that crazy? We're going to see the fruit of our money in, in saints in heaven or in the new earth. Okay, so closing application. Three things. Hear God's word preached better. I need to become a better preacher. You need to become a better listener. Try to grow in learning how to listen to sermons. Because this is the backbone of your life, your church life. This is the backbone of our church life, is preaching. We spend this much time on it. Why? Because this is the lifeblood of the church. So learn how to listen to sermons better. Maybe you need to take notes. Maybe your notes are distracting you. Maybe you should read the text beforehand. Maybe you should come to Wednesday night discussion where we discuss the Sunday text. Maybe you should follow and review the sermon later. Maybe you should take a CD this year and review it. Find ways to be a better sermon listener. Secondly, read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. Here I put in your notes or in your handout a five-day reading plan. And guess what? It starts today. 
It doesn't start two days ago. I'm too late. Maybe next year. No, no, it's January 3. Don't panic. And this plan starts on January 3. And this is a five-day week, so you get two days off. Not to, not to relax, because you're going to need them when you fall away, right? You're going to need those two days to catch up. So you get two days off, and you'll read through the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, in a year. Five days a week. Here's what I want to encourage you to do with this or any plan. Pick another plan if this one's not good. I'm not even using this plan, actually. I'm doing chronological Bible reading. But here's the point. Pick an account, pick two accountability partners in this church. Every Sunday when you see each other and you do that greeting, how's your Bible reading going, brother? If you're reading the same thing, you can even talk about the text you read. Start today. Also, pick a time and place you'll do it. At night at this time, or at the morning, or at my lunch break. And keep consistent with that time and place. If you're going to keep up Bible reading this year, this is what you need to do. Here's the key that will keep you keeping your New Year's resolution, or one of the keys. You need to identify your routine, because you already have a morning routine. You already have an evening routine. Guess what? You just need to read your Bible. So, this is what you do. You don't just say, great, I'll add the Bible to my routine. Guess how long that's going to last? It's, it's not going to last long. A week. What you need to do is identify your routine. I wake up, I brush my teeth, I change, I exercise, I eat breakfast, I get breakfast for the kids. Six things. I just threw out six ideas that came to my mind. You, you have to actually take one out and then put the Bible reading in. Don't just add Bible reading to your list or it will not stick. Most For most of you. Most of you need to actually take something out of your routine to put the Bible in. You've tried to add it before. How long did that last? You can't just add it. You have to subtract something first and then put it in. Okay. And last um, last application, meditate on God's Word. If you're only going to read the Bible 10 minutes a day, here's what you should do. Only read for 6 minutes. And take the last 4 minutes to pick one verse to chew on for 4 minutes. That will make your Bible reading be more memorable. Maybe you won't get through the whole list. That's okay. I would say take at least 5 to 10 minutes in your Bible reading to not just read, but to pick something from what you read to chew on and pray about. That will make a difference in your Bible reading. Brothers and sisters, we got a whole year ahead of us, if God wills. Let's read the Bible more this year than we have in the past. Because it's effective. Because it's God's words. And because it is truly amazing, because it reveals Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would feed on your wonderful words of life. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Renew us this year. May we read your word and treasure it more than treasures of this world. May we desire desire it more than dinner and desserts and dollars. Help us, Lord, to crave your word like a newborn baby craves milk, wanting nothing else. And may our consuming of your word transform our church family, and not just our church family, may it transform us individually, that we might love our neighbors and spread the gospel more in 2016 and help more people encounter Jesus. We ask for your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen.